Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. In the last couple of weeks, China has started to emerge from the paralysis of coronavirus. In Wuhan, where first reports of the virus were recorded, and which hosted two-thirds of the cases in mainland China, people were allowed to leave for the first time last week. Those left in the city have started to get business and industry up and running and resume normal life, whatever that is now. In the wake of the virus, China is having to deal with economic devastation and internal and international tensions. Peter Goff reports for the Irish Times from Beijing. China appears to be coming out the other side of COVID-19 with few reports of deaths and, and very small numbers of imported cases. Is this really as it appears? Yes, it would seem across the country that they have contained the local um, transmissions and there has been very few in the past month or so. Like you say, the imported infections have been a big point of concern. There were um, people were flying into the country, first of all. it was That was a mix of both foreigners and Chinese um, for a while. And they about two weeks ago, they, they banned foreigners coming in. Um, so then it was just returnees, and uh, they were, of course, quarantining anybody who came in for two for two weeks. So they, that has uh, slowed that down. And um, now the um, the biggest concern is on the Russian border. Uh, there, are, there seems to be a big outbreak in Russia. Uh, the numbers up there are about twenty thousand officially, but uh, experts predict it can be could be significantly larger than that. One plane that came in two days ago had sixty infected people on, on one plane alone. Uh, sort of that border has been closed for several weeks, but now they're really trying to tighten it up and uh, try to close it off. It's a big, long border, 4,000 kilometers and so on. They've actually gone to the extreme extent today of issuing rewards to people, residents in China, that if they report uh, with the hotline um, an, an illegal immigrant, they get paid about 400 euros as a reward. And if they physically apprehend them themselves and bring them into the police, they will get something like 700 euros reward. And are communities around there being put back into a state of, of lockdown? In in the northeast eastern province there of Heilongjiang, which is the, the uh, one one there that's uh, seeing most of the cases, that's gone back into lockdown in many cases in the, in the cities that are bordering Russia. Um, you, we see a little bit of two in the southwest, uh, where we have uh, borders there with Laos and, and um and Vietnam, where there's also been immigrants coming across the border. Uh, there's a little bit of um, lockdown going on there. Uh, apart from that, there's almost no uh, lockdown in China now. I think we've seen it, a bit of resurgence too in Wuhan in the last few days where they've been locking down some um, housing compounds where, that have asymptomatic cases in them. So they've put those back under lockdown. Most of the new cases in China are imported, Peter, and that appears to have fed some discrimination by the authorities, notably against Africans in Guangzhou. What form is this racial targeting taking? Yes, I suppose it started about two weeks ago. Across all, against, first of all, started against all foreigners when there was some, there was concern about um, people coming into the country of all kinds and um, bringing in um, the virus from Europe and from North America. And um, so in Beijing, even there, there were signs up in several restaurants saying no foreigners whatsoever allowed, and and um, in hotels, in restaurants, in some bars. And so so uh, this was kind of arbitrary, and, and uh, there was it wasn't an official policy, but people were implementing it on, the, on an individual level. 
And then that escalated about a week ago in Guangzhou in the, in the south, where there is a community of, um, of, of Africans there in, um, in Guangzhou, in, in a place that's colloquially known as Little Africa, where there's a lot of Africans who trade with them and, and uh, use that as their, as their base. Um, and um, <clears throat> there was a cluster there of cases. And there were some um, some reports of uh, of um, of you know, of infections in, in some apartment blocks, and then the authorities came in and they basically rounded up all of the uh, Af Africans in the in the neighbourhood, and they uh, they evicted them out of hotels, they put them kicked them out of their uh, apartments, they treated them very poorly, they threw them on the streets, nobody would take them in, and on um, even like McDonald's had this had sign up in its restaurant there saying that they would not serve um, black customers and so on. So it was a pretty appalling levels of discrimination going on. Um, by Monday, they backtracked quite a bit on that, and the, and the foreign ministry said there would be no prejudice, and they would ensure that this would uh, would um, everyone be treated equally on the ground. And they've been trying to uh, walk that back for the last 24 hours. Last week, for the first time, people in Wuhan with the green code on this government smartphone app were allowed to leave the city for the first time since the 23rd of January. How has that been? It is a system that is, uh, has had a lot of teething problems. Um, it's, it's new technology. Uh, for foreigners in particular, there's been an issue with it because to register, typically you need a Chinese ID number. You can't uh, register with your passport number. Um, so those kind of issues were, uh, were, uh, were problems for the Irish community there. Um, so they were having delays in getting uh, registered on the, and getting this QR code. I think those are being sorted out uh, pretty quickly. And it seems that now that those, those um, problems have been resolved. And once you get that, technically, first of all, that for last week they said once you had that test, that green code, uh, you could travel out of Wuhan. But then they, they strengthened the regulations again two days ago and said now that people leaving... Uh, Wuhan will have to go through at least one more uh, nucleic acid test as well as having the green code. So there's an extra layer of uh, formality before you can leave the city. So what is your sense of what life is like now in Wuhan and the Hubei province generally? Yes, it's certainly it's, it's coming back to life. Uh, there's a, a lot of outside Wuhan. The rest of the province was uh, was uh, sort of opened up about a week or 10 days before Wuhan. Wuhan is now nearly open for mostly for a week. What has put Wuhan on the back foot again was all the China was not counting asymptomatic cases for, for a long time. And about two weeks ago, they, they, they um, changed their system to start accounting and detailing these asymptomatic ca cases and uh, identifying where they were. And it seems like there's a lot of clusters of asymptomatic cases still in, in Wuhan in particular. Um, I mean, the numbers are small compared to what we were looking at some months ago, but we're still talking about, you know, up to maybe uh, you know, more than 1,000, 1,500 uh, asymptomatic cases in certain parts of the city. So that's put parts of it back on, into sort of, uh, sort of lockdown or semi-lockdown mode. It's, it's, it's certain to heighten the uh, tensions in the area again, and um, the people are not relaxed in those areas. So uh, the uh, rest of the country is, um, you know, the, is mostly trying to get back to work. Even schools are starting now in several provinces. So we're starting to see um, sort of a return to a normality of some kind now, but with them, um, people on high alert for sure. You spoke to some of the Irish people who had chosen to remain in Wuhan uh, throughout the lockdown. Uh, what was their, their reaction to, to its lifting and how hard had they found it? Yeah, I spoke to about um, seven of the people who had been in Wuhan or Hubei uh, over the during the period of the time. They had mixed experiences depending on where they were. There were a couple of the a couple of the guys were really in the in Ground Zero. They were right in the uh, near the uh, seafood market, the uh, the epicenter of this outbreak, and um, so they were in the most intense um, places. 
for, uh, one of them in particular for 11 weeks had not been allowed to leave his uh, leave his sixth floor apartment and he was uh, he was alone that, for that entire time so that was um, particularly difficult for him other people who were in Hubei who were not in Wuhan um, were able to um, leave their apartments and uh, you know go to supermarkets every two or three days and so on so they didn't have such a rigid uh, regime um, but all of them were exhausted by the end of it. It was quite a, it was 11 weeks, it was quite a long period. It was um, obviously a, st a stressful time. There was, um, nobody knew how long it was going to go on for, you know, and every time there was seemed to be a window appearing, then there would be new cases or a spike or something and the, and the, uh, and the lockdown would be extended. So it was a very difficult uh, time and still is to an extent because um, certainly people are not relaxed as of yet. We're all looking to China, Peter, as a model of, of how to control the virus, but we, we have very different societies. So it's hard to know what its society worked in favour of controlling the virus and maybe what parts ran, ran counter. What's your sense of that? Yes, well, in, in China, of course, there was a, you know, the, the, they played it here. It was certainly a sort of a, um, an outbreak of two halves. The, fir the first half was a disaster in terms of the handling of it here. Uh, there was a cover-up and they were uh, downplaying the numbers and they were refused to admit that there was human-to-human -human transmissions and so on for several weeks. And that went on from, from, you know, from December all the way up until January the 20th. And it was only January the 20th when they um, did um, announce that there were human-to-human -human transmissions and this was a serious epidemic and that they were going to take um, extreme measures then to, to try to curtail it. Um, so what they did after January the twentieth then was laudatory, and they got uh, you know and uh, got uh, praise from all around the world for what they did for um, for that so that for that second phase, um, and then it was very stringent. Of course, it was lockdown. It was uh, huge huge amounts of tests, contact tracing, isolation. Um, um, obviously, it's an authoritarian country, so it's a, it's um, it was a lot easier to. Um, uh, from their perspective, to stamp down, there was no messing around like we saw of you know hundreds of thousands of people going to Cheltenham or, or situations like that. That didn't happen. But speaking to epidemiologists here, both Chinese and WHO, so there's so much they don't understand themselves about how it happened and how they can control it. There are six provinces, for example, that border Hubei. And you know, we, we know in the two weeks before the lockdown on January the 20th that five million people left Wuhan and went back to where they were from. You know, Wuhan would be a big sort of centre and the people would be working in the regions. So people were spreading out and going to these six provinces for sure in very, very large numbers. And none of those, I think only one of those six provinces has, has had more than 1,000 confirmed cases, many of them just in, in a couple of hundred cases. So people, experts here are just wondering how could that have happened when we know that hundreds of thousands of people left Wuhan when it was in the middle of the epidemic and went to these provinces and said, didn't set off high rates of infection in the neighboring provinces. So they don't know what it is, if it's just a different um, behavior of the virus in, di in different times, different strains or whatever, or is it just luck or whatever, they haven't been able to define it. But um, I was speaking to one um, international epidemiologist the other day who just said, said this kind of thing is just a miracle. Same with cities like Shanghai, you know, there's a huge overflow between Wuhan and, Sh Wuhan and Shanghai, and it still it managed to have a very, very small number of hundreds of, of cases. So um, it's, it's uh, something that they're still scratching their heads about and wondering how did that happen. Peter, there has been a lot of uh, sniping between the US and China over this crisis. Recently, China has taken to uh, including explicit criticism of the US authorities in its state broadcasts and so on. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, obviously, even coming into this epidemic, the relations between the two were pretty sour after a fairly frosty 18 month trade war. They've been um, trading barbers for a long time. 
the U.S. side, first of all, was very critical of the, the China's uh, mishandling of this outbreak in the early phase. Um, one of the main press spokesmen for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, then he started spreading this um, this theory that's going around is that the it was actually the virus actually started in the United States and that was brought over to China by American military who com- who competed in the, the World Military Games in October in Wuhan. And, and he was sort of saying that it was the Americans with the fault for spreading this. And then there was also rumors coming from the foreign ministry that might have been a biological weapon of the United States that had been released and so on. So um, uh, that's really incensed the White House. Donald Trump got particularly angry about that. And uh, he started calling it the China virus and the Wuhan and uh, Pompeo would call it the Wuhan virus. And th- that was going back and forth for quite some time. About four or five days ago, we had... We've seen two things, about 100 academics from America wrote a giant letter and then 100 academics from China wrote one back, basically calling for a more conciliatory air, asking for a bit of a ceasefire and that the two nations of the two largest economies in the world um, toned down the rhetoric and worked together to try to solve this crisis. And to a certain extent, for the past three or four days, we have seen some element of that and, and uh, we will hope that would continue. Peter, as you say, in the initial stages, the Chinese authorities were inclined to play down the virus and the threat that it posed. Um, And, you know, once they realised that it was a massive threat, uh, testing began in earnest and they really threw the kitchen sink at uh, dealing with it to to great effect. Uh, In terms of the figures that are coming out now, there are questions being asked about the number of cases and whether they're in fact accurate at this stage. Yes, everybody in, in China, whether it's GDP figures or whether it's the pollution um, PM two point five figures, there's a tendency here uh, among Chinese themselves and and foreign observers to take official statistics with a pinch of salt. Um, so there is there, whether rightly or wrongly that that tends to be the. Um, the way people operate here, because just historically there have been, um, you know, numbers have been proven to be faulty on a number of occasions, and this would be no exception. Having said that, um, I, yeah, I've been travelling around the country, but several uh, other reporters have too. You know, at this day and age, there are a million Chinese people who have smartphones and so on, and it's amazing. In the run-up to this, long before Amer- uh, the January the 20th, before the uh, officials uh, declared this a mass emergency, we all knew it was, the whole country knew it was because of what we were seeing and hearing from hospitals, from people, from them um, looking at clips from around the country and so on. So uh, that was, that, those rumblings were going on around the country. We're not hearing that now. You know, you can walk into hospitals now and there's, there's um, it's, it's very peaceful. There, there are, you know, empty, you know, empty wards and so on. They've closed down all these extra quarantine centres. We're not uh, seeing that sort of thing now. So, um, it's even in a, in a, in a very um, sort of authoritarian state like this, where they can take draconian measures. It's kind of it is impossible for them to um, to to silence sort of you know massive massive deaths and so on because people do speak out when when their loved ones are are being hospitalised and dying and so on. And particularly if they think there's a of any kind of injustice going on. So the tendency here among Chinese and among uh, for, uh, foreign observers and journalists and diplomatic um, so community and so on would tend to believe that the numbers are at least a good indicator of a trend. As you know, uh, Peter, we received personal protective equipment supplies to Ireland from China in the last number of weeks, but a a, a portion of this, around 20%, turned out to be unsuitable. What was the response to this in China? Well, this has happened across the board. Of of course, uh, 
even in, in China themselves, they had, they had not they had not enough PPE equipment for them for themselves. So what what was happening in in um, early Feb, January February is factories were were um, adapting, and you were, you had car factories making ventilators, and you had the, like sportswear factories making uh, face masks, and and a whole lot of um, opportunists were jumping in, into this market, but without. Um, obviously without the proper levels of uh, supervision and, and so on. So uh, in, re- in response to that, uh, with that um, there were complaints coming in from all around the world about the quality of PPE equipment that was going out um, to that. So in response to that, about a week ago, China has said now that they must, there's an extra layer of supervision and no shipments can leave the country without a final checking, but it is creating a huge bottleneck there as well now because it means that uh, shipments are ready, but they can't go until they get the final stamp of approval. The virus, as we all know, is is precipitating a, a massive a global recession. What's the state of the Chinese economy and is there any sign of its recovery? We're getting Q1 results today. The, um, the predictions are China's... Um, Last year, first quarter was about 6%. We're, we're looking at predictions for the first quarter this year to be about 2%, 2.5% or something. So it would be down quite considerably. Um, but the um, it is now gearing back up again. It won't be anything like the SARS epidemic. After SARS, there was a V-shaped recovery. There, there's nothing like that. Now, I think there's about 90% of factories and so on are back up working now. But of course, the supply chains are um, falling apart and the markets in Western Europe and in North America are um, in, in, a, in a very bad position at the moment too. So people are expecting um, it's going to be a, a very bad year. Last year was the worst year China had economically for 30 years. So it's already slowing down. And uh, this is going to be a very serious uh, impact. The levels of unemployment um, are going to be astronomical. Um, very much like China, is, you know, it's, it's, it's moved now to a more consumption economy and so on, but it's still very much the factory of the world. It's still very much reliant on, on world trade. And uh, so it is, is um, yeah, hoping, it's hope that, uh, that the North America and Western Europe will um, recover very quickly and that that consumer demand will pick up again. In the early days of all of this, there was a lot of public discontent about the Chinese authorities' handling of the crisis. Has that subsided now or how is that resolved? Yes, there was, there was palpable anger, and particularly the, on the, the night that um, the doctor, the whistleblowing doctor, Li Wenliang, when he died, it was incredible. The, um, there was, people were livid across the country. The uh, the social media platforms just were went um, ballistic with with uh, vehement anger aimed at the Communist Party. I think there was something like ten billion uh, messages posted within a period of a few hours. Uh, I've never seen. I've been coming to China for twenty years. I've never seen um, such uh, anger aim, and uh, visceral anger aimed at the uh, aimed at the party. And it seemed like it was going to be. It could be a real. Um, um, sort of uh, changing moment. The the government then, like they did, apologize. They fired some some big um, uh, political leaders in the in the region. They then exonerated the doctor later on, and so on. And they tried to sort of really work to try to shift the narrative to show that they were the kind of uh, the saviors in in this, and that the um, that only only um, like a, a party like the Communist Party with uh, such resources and such power and such clout could could contain this virus. The um, the court of public opinion here seemed to really shift when they saw this sort of fiasco unfolding in Europe, first of all, and then in, in the United States afterwards. 
and how they were the case the uh, outbreaks were being severely uh, mishandled there as well um, particularly in the United States and it seemed then that in the public opinion seemed to shift back in favor of the of the government here in the Communist Party considering that comparatively speaking the government hadn't done such a bad job after all when they looked at how it was been handled in other countries now thanks very much Peter In the coming weeks, we plan to run episodes in which our experts deal with your queries and questions about coronavirus and the current situation. Send your queries in audio file or text format by email to coronavirus at irishtimes.com. My thanks to Declan Collin and Suzanne Brennan who produced today's podcast and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. 